This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is October 26, 2023. I'm Scott Lundeboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, we have new laws and bills here in British Columbia. The federal government has put a freeze on a part of the federal carbon tax admitting defeat. And we have a series of scathing reports from the Auditor General. Uh, it turns out there are actually occasionally good reports from the Auditor General, ones that are like, actually, center block is being built just fine. Which was a surprise. Um, or at least the early phases of it were. Yeah. The, the, I think the, the budget's not entirely been on track in some of the more recent stuff. But the five reports out this past week are bad. Uh, Patreon.com slash Politicoast. Let's start here in BC. At least three bills were granted royal assent. Just today, the Police Act changes we talked about in Surrey are now law. Sorry, Brenda Locke, you're going to have to deal with the Surrey Police Service. The Short-Term Rental Act was also uh, through committee this week and became law as well. Just this afternoon, the BC Liberal or BC United <laughs> had put forward a number of amendments on this bill and actually started to really take up the cause of the beleaguered multi-homeowner who was banking their retirement on having one or two more 250 square foot condos that they were airbnb out in downtown Victoria. And not the most sympathetic stories you're hearing. No, and for a party that uh, needs to do everything it can to kind of regain the public's interest, uh, probably not very tact. The amendments they put forward were kind of weird too. One would have created like exclusion zones for the bill around sports venues or for big events. So like downtown Vancouver, it would not apply to, which seems like exactly where you want it to apply to. Uh, another amendment would have changed the definition of short-term rental from uh, let, rent it out for under 90 days down to under 30 days. I think that one is one reasonable people can disagree on. Um, I don't have a strong opinion. I, I did do a review of a number of bills and legislation that define short-term rentals, and most usually actually do define it as 30 days, but like, I'm not really bothered by the difference here. Yeah, I couldn't like see the benefit of like, you know, someone needs to be in town for a couple months, but not long enough to sign a lease, and like, you maybe wouldn't want to penalize that. So, yeah, knocking it down to 30 actually seems pretty reasonable. It's not like there's a lot of people airbnb for, uh, 59 days at a time or anything so like who who would you be catching but really by going for the longer term anyway yeah but the ndp used the power of a majority government and just stuck with the bill as they drafted it uh and finally the other bill that became law today we didn't talk about when it was introduced we might have talked about it last year when it was first being talked about but we have a official fossil emblem now the elasmosaurus is now our provincial fossil cool uh this came about following a vote held by the province in 2018 i think this was the first fossil discovered in bc or at least the first fossil of its kind found on the west of the west of the canadian rockies found in 1988 on along the puntledge river on vancouver island we have the link in the show notes for the government press release if you want to know more about our provincial fossil you can also discover what our provincial flower bird mammal fish emblem mineral emblem, uh, and tree are. In addition to the bills becoming law, we got three new bills introduced in the legislature this week. The first is a new International Foreign Credential Act that will help uh, people in 29 different professions start working in BC faster. One of the big issues this seeks to tackle is what they call the Catch-22, where you are required to get Canadian work experience prior to being accredited in Canada. Not always the easiest thing to do. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, definitely helps a lot. And like, not everywhere has it. Like, um, you know, professional engineers, one of the ones that's uh, captured here, 
in Canada, you need a year of Canadian experience uh, as part of it to get it. But like several of the U.S. states, for example, don't require a year of U.S. experience. So it's not like there aren't places that make it work without domestic experience. Yeah, the legislation will take a number of other barriers down. They'll remove redundant language testing. They set caps for processing times and require that the information on credentials be available online so it's easier to try to figure out what you have to do. There's also going to be a superintendent responsible for promoting fair credential recognition uh, who will basically just make sure there's compliance with this new legislation among the 18 regulatory authorities mandated to do this. So like engineers matter, this also helps us uh, improve bringing over teachers, uh, uh, healthcare workers, and there's a number of others. I don't think we have a shortage of lawyers, but this does affect lawyers as well. Uh, maybe we do. I don't actually know enough about the state of the legal profession in this province. But like, this has been an issue that's almost in perpetuity in Canada. Is like the stereotypical person who is a trained heart surgeon in India, but then like has to drive a cab here. Uh, this doesn't necessarily solve that directly, but it at least makes it a little bit easier to move have have you know high talent people move to Canada and start working in their chosen field which we should want it's probably also not going to solve our healthcare crisis but it's definitely one of the barriers you want to get out of the way no in fact i uh don't believe that uh, nurse or a doctor was actually on this right paramedic i think is and they did flag that this ties into some of the other work they've been doing on helping uh, get physicians and nurses into BC through uh, other related programs. Yeah, I think we talked about it a few uh, weeks ago. But this does help bring land surveyors and registered music teachers. Is music teacher really something that needs its own regula regulated profession and certification for? Like A lot of these absolutely made sense because there's real like, life and limb on there. Uh, you know, with engineers or you, know, you could really screw someone's life up if, you know, as a lawyer, you're incompetent or something. But like, does a kid not getting to play the saxophone all that well? Is that like really a regulatory problem? I have uh, I, no intention to offend the registered music teachers out there. <laughs> I'm sure they're all lovely people. Uh, and I'm sure it has its historic reasons for existing. But, you know, a good bill, and I've not seen pushback against it yet, but maybe there's some nuanced reasons that neither of us are aware enough. So, like, the only thing I could uh, potentially see on some of these is some of the knowledge is specific. Like, um, you know, there, with respect to engineers, there are codes in Canada that are not the same codes as uh, in the U.S., for example, or other countries, and it takes a little time to get up to speed on those. Or lawyer. Um, Lawyer, you know, the laws of Canada are not the laws of everywhere else. So there is some country specific information that uh, needs to be incorporated. Um, some of the other ones, like uh, registered forestry technologist, yeah, maybe a little less needed to, where there's like a very clear things might be different in Canada versus elsewhere. Like, Plants are plants, and to the extent they change between countries, they don't exactly follow borders because uh, bioregions and whatnot uh, are not where uh, international boundaries are demarcated by. So, the next bill the province introduced was amendments to the zero emission vehicle sales targets. Um, they're pegging this as making it easier to buy ZEVs, but it doesn't really do that. It's just emphasizing that our targets for EV sales are increasing to 26% by 2026, 90% by 2030, and 100% by 2035. Essentially, we're moving our targets up by five years from what the original ones were. Uh, they note that we're already at 21% of new light-duty passenger vehicles sold in BC this year are EVs, and that's the highest in Canada. So, Seems like they're moving their targets up because they're doing too well and it, pat on the back kind of thing. Yeah, there's, there's room to improve. Just, yeah, when I first saw 26% by 2026, that seemed 
ambitious and, you know, you can slap a requirement to sell some percentage, but, you know, if the customers aren't there for it, it's going to be hard to uh, actually get those sales numbers where you want them to. But if you have to make a, a 5% market change in three years, it's not out of the question. Yeah, I think the bigger challenge facing people wanting EVs is the high sticker price still. Um, a lot of EVs are priced at 45000 and up based on where the, you know, your EV has to be 45000 or under to qualify for, I think, the provincial and federal rebates. And so every EV starts at an MSRP of 45000 but then you want to get air conditioning and that's an extra 2000 you know, and it rolls up as you get the higher trim. And then some are just priced above that, like the F-150 Lightning is... I think like 80,000 or something like all trucks are. So it's a very prohibitive, you know, new market, but at least increasing the number of EVs being sold will increase the resale market as well. And you know, EVs have lower operations and maintenance costs. So it does kind of come out. Now with interest rates rising, it's probably a little harder to actually realize those savings. Uh, over the short to medium term, because a lot of that probably didn't get eaten up by uh, additional financing costs. But... Yeah, it's very nice when I got 0% financing over seven years for my EV. <laughs> it's a freaking joke. It's, you know, it's not nothing that we're paying per month for it, but it's nothing on interest, which is hilarious. I mean, when you factor in inflation, like, you're... Vi you're basically making money in a way. Oh, we that. put the absolute minimum amount down. I mean, if it if it's free to borrow, like, why the hell wouldn't you? Yeah. Uh, on the province's side, they have also announced with this bill that they're putting another $7 million into their um, home and workplace charger rebate program. So um, I guess that had actually run out. So I've not put an upgraded charger in our house, and I don't know if we will anytime soon, but... Uh, I'll have to wait till October 31st for the applications to open up again if I want to get the, I don't know, I think it's like 250 or 500 bucks from BC Hydro to help fund that installation. The next bill is changes to the BC School Act. I follow this bill closely, or this law closely for work for all kinds of various reasons. And today's changes have nothing to do with secularism and the stuff I do at the Human Association. Specifically, they are improving, in their words, uh, in outcomes for K-12 Indigenous students. Uh, these amendments follow consultations with First Nations uh, education councils and really try to reform the School Act's way of managing and working with First Nations. So First Nations will now have the option to apply what they're calling a model local education agreement with a school board. This would essentially allow a First Nation to contract out education from the local school board. So the Squamish Nation could have the Vancouver school board do run a school in the Sanok development that they're building and have it be a Squamish Nation school for Squamish students. As far as I understand it, uh, this bill will also require all school boards in the province to establish Indigenous education councils, which will put Indigenous people uh, into the decision-making process for anything the school board is doing that affects Indigenous students, and that will require representation from local First Nations. Uh, and finally, they're going to allow First Nations to decide which schools will be the school of choice for on-reserve students. So it sounds like fairly positive steps towards, you know, getting more Indigenous involvement It's in education. It's not full um, sovereignty over education for First Nations in some cases, but it's a good step in that way. Yeah, it all seems to make sense. And like the ability to contract out also uh, makes a fair bit of sense. I could definitely imagine cases where a uh, indigenous nation just doesn't have the uh, internal capacity. Like it's small enough for developing those in-house uh, expertise may be more challenging on the, such a small scale. So it made sense to uh, use the uh, local school board, 
particularly when paired with uh, greater decision-making power or influence over that policy. Uh, it's probably better than uh, some of the stuff we've seen in the past where there is uh, unequal resources allocated to things directly. Yeah, the one thing I'm curious about is how well these uh, Indigenous education councils will work in practice. It sounds great in theory, but finding the people to sit on them will always be a bit of a challenge as any you know board ends up being and you know will will they just be an advisory one that gets ignored or you know how how much will they be listened to will also matter uh, so you know the bread that's going to be something i guess we'll have to work out over the next few years but you know, this has buy-in from First Nations and follows the government's commitments to the Declaration on Rights of Indigenous People. So, from that perspective, I you know I can't sit here in my you know armchair and criticize this too heavily uh, without seeing uh, a broader view on how it all shakes out in the end. I guess. Well, just outside of the legislature, still in government, the province has struck a critical minerals committee. Take it, take me through it, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is a new advisory committee that is being uh, stood up uh, as part of BC's critical mineral strategy, which uh, in some ways mirrors the uh, one the federal government is has launched. BC is still working through the details of theirs. Uh, notably, though, one thing we do know is that uh, the critical mineral strategy in BC is uh, not going to include uranium and thorium, uh, two minerals that are uh, key elements in nuclear power. So what's really interesting here is the federal strategy has 31 metals and minerals that are critical to the energy transition. Uh, BC's strategy has 31 minerals without uranium and thorium. So I don't know what we're looking for that they're not. I'm kind of curious about that, although it probably doesn't really matter. Um, the uranium and thorium one is what makes this kind of interesting. Uh, so BC has operated on and off, mostly on, it sounds like, a moratorium on nuclear development since the 1980s. So it's a you know bipartisan, we're going to listen to Greenpeace and just not bother with nuclear energy development in this province. And in some ways that made sense, particularly because in terms of actual power generation, we don't really need it. We have plenty of abundant hydropower. There's no real need to build a bunch of nuclear reactors in BC. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, there isn't potentially a spot for BC to be in the supply chain of the nuclear industry. And that's where the prohibition on uranium mining and exploration uh, becomes interesting. Because if we are going to transition off of fossil fuel power, we need reliable baseload energy. And for places that don't have... BC's abundance of hydropower, nuclear becomes a pretty good option for that. And you don't have the uh, the fuel to run that, uh, you run into problems there. So in Canada, almost all of our uranium, I think all of our uranium is actually mined in northern Saskatchewan. Uh, we have about, according to the Government of Canada's Natural Resources Ministry, 514,000 tons or 8% of the world's total uranium known resources that are recoverable at a price of $130 per kilogram. We'd have more recoverable uranium if the price goes higher than that. I have no clue what uranium costs right now. Uh, they, You're not trading uranium futures in your spare time? Yeah, no. Uh, I found a publication on the BC government's website from 1990 that was a study of uranium and thorium deposits in the province. It says that there were 182 known occurrences in the province, but only a few actually have the grade and tonnage required to have any economic potential at all. Uh, they estimate that in total, that was about 7,400 tons. So a fraction of what the national amount was. They do say that 
due to the availability of high-grade large tonnage deposits elsewhere in the world and in Canada, such as northern Saskatchewan, uranium production from deposits in BC may not be economically feasible in the foreseeable future. So this goes to that line that the government basically has is like, there's some here, but it's like a trivial amount that's probably not worth mining. And for the political cost of like debating uranium, let's just just not go there because we don't need to. Um, for reference of that mined uranium that's coming out of Saskatchewan, I think we mine about 8,000 tons a year. So just more than we have in total in BC, 85% is exported and the other 15% goes to can-do reactors in Ontario and I believe New Brunswick, it said. And so we have lots of uranium and most of it we're sending off elsewhere. Like, you know, we do have, I think, a responsibility to help with greener fuels for the world, but it seems like we're doing our share. <laughs> or Saskatchewan's doing our share, to be accurate. Yeah, Saskatchewan's doing a lot of it. I think there's also some in northern Ontario too, but uh, I don't know how much active uh, mining there is versus uh, just past mining that's happened there. I mean, with the on and off prohibitions like we haven't actually done as much exploration in terms of what the resources here in bc are in that as possible so it's one of those things that you know it's probably worth a look and you know if it is really uh economically unviable well then you have to check on it because it's economically unviable you also don't need the government to then put in the moratorium on it which generally leads me to conclude that it's this is more like a political calculus than a uh, policy rationale on a lot of it. The one thing I was really curious when I was thinking about this story is, does uranium travel through BC? Because Natural Resource Canada says we export to America, obviously, as well as Asia and Europe. And presumably to get from Saskat northern Saskatchewan to Asia, you go through British Columbia. This is the whole oil pipeline issue. And so I tried to find out how much uranium is going through the port of Vancouver, but I could not find any information on that. All I could find was a 2011 story of how a container ship carrying uranium from Vancouver hit rough water, something leaked of the uranium and it had to turn back and then it was docked in North Vancouver and residents started going, "That I don't like that. Uh, <laughs> it was deemed perfectly safe. Uh, the raw uranium is not like hyper radioactive, purified, glowing, toxic, danger substance. But I also totally understand why people would be nervous. Uh, and so I've just also wondered, like, where is the like Greenpeace on the rails? Like we had, you know, I talked to Derek O'Keefe on the podcast a few weeks ago about thermal coal going through BC sports. But where's been the outrage about all the trains of uranium coming through the province. Well, I, I imagine it may have to do with the fact that uh, being a nuclear material, security and safety tends to uh, rank a lot higher on the priorities here. Like, it's not, it's probably not the case they travel in highly marked train cars that are visible with these schedules posted to the public well in advance. It's probably the sort of thing where yeah, you know, the uh, the rail companies, whatever arms of the government are involved in this, handle that stuff discreetly in order to maintain uh, the secure transport of it. So that is probably why Greenpeace hasn't uh, thrown themselves in front of a bunch of uh, trains full of uranium. I'm also not trying to give them any ideas. Yeah, they... they are not great when it comes to nuclear power. So yeah, best not to give them any ideas. Uh, speaking of not great, Lytton, 840 days, 20, 30, $40 million spent and no homes built since it burned down. Yeah. Uh, Rob Shaw had a piece uh, end of last week. We missed uh, talking about it on the uh, last week's podcast, but uh yeah, there's a protest outside of uh, legislature related to that, and 
basically the uh, residents of the uh, town that was Lytton are fairly pissed off at the government because uh, it has been, like you said, 840 days later. Uh, the BC government contributed about a little over $40 million uh, towards... I uh, hear it. Yeah. $40.99 million towards rebuilding, uh, 57% of which has already been spent, and there has been nothing built as a result. Uh, all of the spending to date and a significant amount of the uh, delays on that relate to uh, the costs of covering archaeological work at the, uh, the site of the town. Yeah, Rob's story is definitely worth reading in Northern Beat. I mean... It's one of these tough issues where it was exposed or announced somewhere late in the process that Lytton was actually built on a previous indigenous village. And so it is like a historically significant space. And I am very sympathetic to not wanting to just, you know, bulldoze over 7500 years of history that we never have a chance another chance to look at and i'm also very sympathetic to the uh, you know the several hundred people who haven't had their home for a couple years and i think where the problem ultimately is is just like a lack of transparency and accountability on just you know why are these delays coming so slow why are individual homeowners being told that before you can dig, you have to have two archaeologists standing there at a cost of $800 a day before you can dig any trench on your property. Like, And that's not fun. And that's coming out of your own pocket. The government has no money for you for that. And neither does your insurance company because archaeological bits aren't, I guess, included in most insurance policies. Uh, I don't think it's in mine, to be fair. <laughs> Yeah, and it's. I mean, it was more than just like eight hundred. At least one resident quoted here was uh, asked to pay twenty four thousand dollars for the archaeological work. Yeah, and so at some point, like the government needs to help cover. Like, if we're going to require the archaeology be done, and I am frankly pretty sympathetic to that uh, being required, then there needs to be an ability to help do that. Um, Adam Olson has some good quotes on here about how just the archaeological branch as its own is letting everyone down. It's letting indigenous people down. It's letting property owners down. And it's basically just screwing everyone over through its antiquated approaches and policies and laws. Yeah. And like, there should probably be some form of uh, not just having the actual archaeological work being uh, paid for by the government if the government considers this stuff appropriate but there should probably also be some sort of uh compensation for the homeowners uh, who are being delayed from uh rebuilding their homes uh at this point for multiple years on it and like it really does not seem fair to like burden them with not just the cost but the uh the delays and the inability to reestablish one's home and one's community over the long term. And yeah, two things that are intention here, but that just comes with governing. It's the case where, you know, you never have solutions. You only have trade-offs. And I think it's pretty hard to look at this and say the government has actually done anything but a terrible job at uh, handling the trade-offs here. Well, and as, Shaw gets into in his point, like one of the biggest things that I think is frustrating residents is that lack of clarity and communication. Some of the things they're hearing are only being like trickled out. They were told they weren't told anything about the archaeology other than archaeology had to be done. And then in a press conference, Bowen Ma lets out that, oh, we found 7,000 artifacts dating back 7,500 years. That's a cool fact. Should have told people that sooner. I don't know why archaeology is top secret information. Like, I get you want to verify it first, but like, people might be a little bit more sympathetic if they understand why they can't have a house. It doesn't mean they'll be happy, but you could at least buy yourself a little bit of grace. <laughs> maybe not two and a half years, but maybe one. <laughs> yeah, like, there's some, 
Yeah, there should maybe be like a time limit on this stuff for cases of rebuilding work. Yeah, I, I can definitely see the argument for, you know, if you're doing greenfield development or something, having a very, uh, a, a set of fairly strict rules on archaeology work and whatnot and what's required there. But we're talking about a case of an entire community was burned down and needs to be rebuilt and the community needs to be reestablished before, you know, the fairly permanent damage may end up happening if the community isn't able to reestablish itself in a uh, reasonable time frame. That's that's the sort of wounds that uh, can often linger on community for quite a while on this. And as we're going to be dealing with more climate-related damages and disasters, we're going to have to get better, not worse, at uh, being able to quickly rebuild and repair the damage being done, that was done. And I mean, from what we've seen here, that's uh, a case where the government is going in the wrong direction on this. And I mean, hopefully we don't have another village destroyed anytime soon, but you know, I wouldn't put money on it and the policy framework should be there to facilitate a rapid rebuilding and, and reestablishment of a community. And if it can't do that, well then, there's some serious problems with how we've uh, decided to run our, set up our trade-offs on the policy level. Absolutely. Out here in my neck of the woods in Port Coquitlam, an elementary school burned down tragically last Monday. No one was inside, thankfully, because it was a like Sunday night. But you know, there's already moves to rebuild that school within like three years. They're trying to accelerate that as fast as possible. And that is a reasonable thing for government to do. Um, the same urgency should happen when a town burns down. Like the archaeology is important and should be done, but it sounds like there aren't enough archaeologists. There's restrictions in how they're working with the local First Nation, and it's just where there's a will, there can be a way, and that's missing here. On the accountability side, the opposition, uh, rightly I think, probably called for the Auditor General to do an investigation. They tried to pass a motion through the legislature to have the legislature call for an Auditor General's report, and the NDP blocked that. Nevertheless, the uh, Auditor General Michael Pickup wrote that he is uh, doing preliminary research on the matter and scoping an audit. Uh, they do want to note that they're not eager to impede the progress of rebuilding by auditing it in the middle of all the work. But they're going to try and do what progress there. There's something's been done, <laughs> uh, but they found 7,000 artifacts, Scott. Um, he does want to make sure uh, they get into this, uh, although it is complex because it's not simply a provincial matter, he says. So it sounds like the Auditor General is going to start doing something, give us some interim insights, and that will help at least get more of a picture of what's not happening. Yeah, it's interesting that the uh, government like went out of its way to try and swash the uh, the Auditor General from taking a look at this. That, to me, suggests there's something that they know has happened that uh, probably shouldn't have or has made the process go longer than it needed to be. Probably, but they may also, like, legit just not want more bureaucrats in the way it doesn't seem like the I mean, more has, likely has, argument but it's like the you know every I mean, every NDP, government like the civil service doing stuff has never been something they've been particularly opposed to every every government oppo- opposes an investigation until the very last minute like that's not surprising it's not necessarily good but it's not surprising Let's jump to national news. The, the surprising news this afternoon is that Justin Trudeau has announced, despite um, repeatedly rejecting motions to this effect, including one just one year ago, as well as some more recently, that the federal carbon tax will be removed from will be removed from home heating oil for the next three years. As well, they are going to double the rural rebate 
top up from 10 to 20 percent uh and they're going to basically make heat pumps free for low-income households who are on the oil to heat pump grant program they'll basically increase the grants from 10 to 15,000 uh give people 250 dollars up front and then with the extra 5,000 province have you can cover a 20 grand upgrade to your heat so free heat pumps is a really cool thing but the headline three-year pause on the carbon tax on home heating oil yeah just like you said that caught everyone by surprise and and this really feels like a case of a uh, late stage government flailing around trying to desperately stop the bleeding and probably just gonna end up making it worse so like you said the there have been calls to eliminate the carbon tax on home heating oil for years now. Um, they've resisted it. Finally came around as of today, basically providing no warning to anyone. Uh, the minister here in BC put out a statement saying this caught us by surprise. So this really does feel like a case of a rapid change in direction by a government that is feeling the heat and one that is uh, seems like questionable politics will probably hurt them. So they've basically staked to the government's brand. It's this is a signature policy. If you know anything about like what the liberal government was and stood for over the past eight years, I mean, the carbon tax was right up there. And they have partially gutted it in a way that will make nobody who hates the carbon tax happy and will piss off anyone who was a climate voter that supported them before. And it just leaves the whole thing as a mess. Like it, look, it makes the government look either incompetent, unprincipled, or a combination of the two. Like incompetent in that uh, they didn't realize the trouble this would cause for everyday people and felt the need to switch back, or cynical in they saw they were taking a hit and needed to be wanted to go back on something that they have made a central part of their brand to try and regain a little support, stop the bleeding a bit. I mean, they have so tied this to kind of their sense of who they are like their the morale the moral story of the liberal government even on that that like go back on it just comes across as unprincipled so on, it's a mess yeah on on the policy side their argument they're trying to pitch forward is there are a number of people who especially in rural frankly atlantic canada homes who are stuck on old oil heating systems. Basically, heating oil is not used west of Quebec, including. There's, you know, a, tens of thousands of homes in BC, at most, maybe like 20,000. And there's a couple communities that don't have natural gas hookups, notably Nacusp, where there's a number of homes on heating oil. But by and large, everyone in you know, Western Canada, Ontario, Quebec is using natural gas or electricity, and it varies province by province. Uh, there's a lot of electricity used for heating in the Atlantic Canada as well, but it varies province by province from like 20 to like 60% of homes are on heating oil, PEI being the highest, New Brunswick being the lowest, me just staring at pie charts that I stole from a CBC uh, article on this that I'll include in the show notes. So it is a challenge that if you are on heating oil and you can't immediately switch to a heat pump, you're basically being penalized by this. And so putting the pause for a temporary time in conjunction with the free heat pump program, basically, I can see the argument for it, even though I am in agreement with everything you said about the crassness of it. The political side of it is, 
I think a week or two ago, we were almost going to add this story to the show notes, and then we cut it at the last minute. There was one MP from the Liberals from Newfoundland, Ken, I think Ken McDonald. We had to look up his name like three times to remember. And his the only thing on his Wikipedia that he's done nationally was he stood up in this one vote a couple of weeks ago and sided with the Conservatives in a motion to attack the carbon tax because he has been speaking out for his residents that are on heating oil. And he got his wish. He got exact. Well, he didn't get the whole carbon tax scrapped. He never really said that other than this one vote. It mostly sounded like he wanted the pause on heating oil carbon taxes. And so maybe he was ready to jump ship and the liberals were so desperate not to look that much weaker in Atlantic Canada. And they're looking at their polls and just like shivering that their fortress has like just completely collapsed out there. Uh I don't know, like one floor crosser, it's not the sort of thing that really anyone outside the Ottawa bubbles really going to pick up on all that much. So I'm sure it uh, would have been a five alarm fire in PMO, but like it's not the sort of thing that ought to uh, really change direction all that much. But they did. <laughs> and on. Yeah, and on the policy side, like, oh, yeah, maybe you can squint and, and make a rationale for it. It leads to some other kind of uh, bizarre things, uh, such as natural gas still gets the carbon tax applied to it. And natural gas has a significantly better climate profile, or GHG profile, per unit energy than heating oil does. So by exempting heating oil but not natural gas for uh, home heating, you're basically having a policy structure that incentivizes the dirtier fuel. You're letting the Western bastards freeze in the dark. Which I think just goes to the point of that. Like This really felt like a case of politics more than policy steering things. Um, you'd uh, remark pretty much as soon as it's broke that uh, they're going to lose uh, as a initial take on it and yeah I this really feels kind of like couple of the uh, late government reversals of direction whether it was win in Ontario or uh well, I guess you argue some of like the stuff Christy Clark did around housing in the final days of the government. Like, it all has the same vibe to it, and this really comes across as we're in trouble. We know we're in trouble. We are trying to. We need to do something. This is something. Let's do it. And I don't think it's actually going to help them at all. And if anything, it's just going to show their weakness and you know what's next are they going to do a ar-15s for everyone bill since they're uh, completely going back on their core propositions it's worth the caveat and i probably should have said this earlier but because bc quebec and the northwest territories have our own carbon taxes this won't apply to any of the people in those three or those two provinces and territory who are on home heating oil, unfortunately. Though Minister Josie Osborne here in BC says, we will be taking action, which is vague and unclear. Maybe it'll just be like a check to people on home heating oil uh, or another rebate. Although David Eby was ruling out further uh, rebate checks earlier this week going to do something they were taken off guard though which does hint at or you know speak to the slapstick nature slapdash nature of this like i think like there is value to a government being able to admit its mistakes and change course but this doesn't have to feel like that right that that requires there to be a principle at play or like you know they listen to the people and there is a principal reason to stop doing what they've been doing here it's yeah, like, um, you know, Doug Ford is probably like the classic example of someone who's a like very good po- politician at the, oh, shucks, we need to change course. That was a mistake. We've listened and we're going to fix it. 
I don't think Trudeau can pull it off, though. Like, it's beyond the there's wisdom in sometimes reversing states. Not every political tool is available to every politician, and um, I mean, the liberals are just so goddamn say demonious about all of this stuff that uh, for and have been for the last eight years. Like to go back on it, like it's it is too tonally dissident in a way that say. Dud forward going, whoops, that, that green belt thing was a big screw up. We're going to fix that. Isn't this totally dissonant? I mean, part of it is Doug Ford is always flip-flopping. And he, and he blows yeah, like a wind but like sock, he's also right? good yeah. at the flip-flop in a way that I do not think Trudeau yeah. can pull off. So I wouldn't say the carbon tax has been gutted, but the moral argument behind it sure has. It was quite the surprising announcement. We'll see... I guess we'll see how this falls out over the coming weeks. But what what news that was. It's almost as damning for the government as the last five reports out of the Auditor General's office that dropped all at once to just be like, nothing works, hey? Are you saying Canada is broken? I'm saying many of the initiatives that have been undertaken by the public service over decades to address known barriers and inequities in the workplace uh, but none have resulted in the full removal of barriers and an achievement of equity. The first report, report number five of the year, is inclusion of workplace of for racialized employees, and that's the first sentence out of the summary. I'm basically just going to go through some of these summaries because they, they paint the picture. Uh, so this first report looked at six agencies, uh, Canada Border Service Agency, Correctional Service Canada, Justice Canada, Public Prosecution Service Canada, Public Safety Canada, and Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Basically, Ministry of Justice departments, it looks like. It found they... Oh, public safety, too. Yes. Uh, they have EDI action plans, but there are no measurements or, of or comprehensive reporting on progress against outcomes for racialized employees in each organization. As a result, the six organizations of the six they selected did not know whether their actions had made or would make a difference in the work lives of racialized employees. So they're they're putting plans in place, but just ignoring whether anything happens out of them. And that's going to be a consistent theme across these different reports. The, in fact, I think that's a uh, consistent criticism of uh, the Canadian government overall is that uh, it tends to like to measure inputs and does not do a great job at uh, clarifying what the uh, outputs it's going for is or. Uh, holding itself accountable to Which them. is wild given that Trudeau's like initial governing ideology was deliverology and this idea that they need to have measurements. I guess they just measured the inputs though. Report six, antimicrobial resistance. These cover like really random different things, but I find it fascinating. This one starts with the first sentence. Overall, the federal government did not do enough to address the growing resistance to antimicrobial drugs such as antibiotics to help safeguard the health of Canadians. Not great, Bob. Uh, they note that there is a Public Health Agency of Canada plan on antimicrobial resistance, and they worked with the provinces to help develop it, but it didn't cover many important elements such as concrete deliverables, timelines, and details about who is accountable for each action. Without those, it's unlikely the plan will result in meaningful actions and produce desired outcomes. Uh, they have also failed to do enough to improve market access for new antimicrobial drugs available in other countries. Uh, and so we really uh, are just dropping the ball on making sure we have a good strategy to protect us from antimicrobial resistance, which, you know, having just lived through most of a global pandemic, it would be great to pay attention to public health. Next up, modernizing IT systems. Uh, overall, the Treasury Board of Canada Secretariat and Shared Services Canada did not do enough to lead and support partner departments and agencies to modernize outdated information technology systems. It has been more than 24 years since the government first identified aging systems as a significant issue, and the Secretariat <laughs> does not have a strategy to drive modernization. Jesus. Like, the technology has gone through several iterations in that time. Uh, the EI system has still not been modernized enough, even though we flagged the system was at risk of failure in our 2010 audit. Yeah, that uh, that does not surprise me. We'll come me. back to um, I, uh, EI in a second. 
in this audit, they also found two thirds of the departments and agencies' applications were reported as being in poor health and in critical need of modernization. But this number could be greater because departments and agencies are not providing Treasury Board with timely, accurate, and complete information about the health of their systems. This makes it difficult for the Secretary to have a full picture of the work needed and to decide on which system should be prioritized for modernization. The systems aren't modern enough for them to report that they don't work. Ugh. I mean, that, uh, yeah, that, that does not surprise me at all. Um, yeah, last year, um, I, I used the eye for a bit when my uh, previous employer went bust. And uh, I had to, I got a Service Canada payment related to that. And I had to like go through a whole reporting process to tell Service Canada the EI department, that different part of Service Canada had sent me a payment and like I had to report Service Canada to Service Canada. It was the dumbest thing uh, possible. I have a bill on and my desk for $500 to Service Canada because they didn't pay me EI and then they overpaid me EI and then I was not getting EI and then I told them about this overpayment and then they paid me a bit more. Yeah, it's a mess. I, I have like three other stories related to how. So let let's talk about report number stuff. eight, the benefits delivery modernization program, the very specific one. Uh, it says the IT systems currently used to deliver these benefits, these being EI, CPP, and old age security, pretty important ones uh, for Canadians between ages of twenty to sixty years old. Uh, oh, sorry, the IT systems being used to deliver. These benefits being EI, CPP, and old age security, very important ones, are between 20 and 60 years old and risk of failing. The IT system for, I don't know which one of those benefits, but one of those IT systems is 60 years old. It's dating to 1960, <laughs> right? Wow. So, like, someone probably programmed that thing. Yeah. Someone probably did it with, like, punch cards and then... Cobol or something. Quote, if these systems were to fail, it could greatly affect more than 10 million Canadians who rely on them for their daily needs. As time goes on and estimated costs continue to rise, we are concerned that the decision makers may scale back or eliminate the transformation component of the three benefits, resulting in a final product that does not consider the needs of millions of Canadians who rely on them. Held together with duct tape, our EI pension plan and old age security benefit. Glad I'm not getting old. Oh, wait. I, I still have some time before I uh, retire, so maybe the systems will just be uh, 100 years old by the time I need to access them. I, I would not necessarily count on that. That's going to work. You would well. not count on me getting a pension. Fair. <laughs> uh, and the final report, Report 9, changes gears a little bit, but not in tone. Processing applications for permanent residents, immigration, refugees, and citizenship. So they say there have been recent efforts to improve processing times and reduce the backlogs, uh, but many people are still waiting way too long for uh, immigration, refugees, and citizenship Canada to process their applications. People applying for refugee status are most affected. On average, privately sponsored refugees are waiting 30 months for a decision. Well, overseas spouses or common law partners waited 15 months to be reunited with their partners in Canada. Processing times have improved in most of the programs, uh, but they continue to exceed the department service standards. So for reference, a couple years ago, following the Syrian refugee crisis, the BC humanists that I work for, we tried to sponsor a Syrian refugee, and we ultimately ended up trying to sponsor someone, uh, I believe, who'd fled Iran. Don't quote me on the exact details. And we had this all lined up. And it took 18 months then for uh, immigration to get back to us to actually reject the application because they said, oh, the couple went back home to their – because you're a refugee if you're not in your home country, but you're not in Canada yet. And so, they had gone back to their home country for like an emergency eye surgery or something and that therefore proved they didn't feel unsafe going home and therefore they couldn't come over as refugees. But it took them 18 months to tell us that. And maybe they wouldn't have done it if they'd gotten to Canada before then. 30 months is absurd. That's two and a half years of living in a refugee camp when someone has the money and resources and volunteers to bring you over. 
to sponsor a refugee as a private group in Canada, you need volunteers who will look after these people for the first year, you know, getting them accustomed to Canadian society. Keeping a volunteer group together for two and a half years is very hard. Yeah, it's completely unreasonable that takes that long and becomes a huge, yeah, like you said, drag on the whole thing. Uh, the report goes on to say that um, they have introduced online applications uh, to receive and process applications more quickly, and that is a good thing. However, quote, the portals remain unavailable to most people applying for refugees programs who have no choice but to submit their applications electronically through unsecured email. Uh, this often includes, you know, passport, photocopies of passports and other bits of ID, and they're just like emailing it around and it could be stolen uh, when they're already in an incredibly precarious situation. Uh, they say Immigration Refugee Citizenship Canada did not monitor the implementation of its automated eligibility assessment tool to assess whether the tool was reducing overall process times, again, not measuring outcomes. And they did not reallocate resources so processing times would remain roughly equivalent whether the applications were access assessed by the tool or manually by an officer. So it's there's a little bit of good news in there in that following the COVID-19 backlog, we've shortened it a bit, but we're, it's still wildly unacceptable and often unfair. Yeah. Yeah, overall, these uh, reports do not paint a good picture of how the uh, the government's running, and it uh, it's the sort of thing where politically, it's not going to be the case that like most people are going to dig into what the various AG reports say, and have takeaways from that that are going to kind of influence whether or not they're going to vote for the government again or not. But they all kind of touch on something that like people are probably going to be interacting with or hearing about kind of in the generalities. And it all paints a picture or it's all reflective of a government that just isn't very good at doing its fundamental jobs on a whole bunch of issues and that is not great for governments that are looking to uh bring in new programs there's probably not going to be a huge amount of trust on all of that and you know if you're thinking about i don't know farmer care for example like the fact that you can't uh get new antimicrobials in Canada, just because the government departments that are supposed to be doing this just aren't doing their job on that. So it doesn't reflect well. And it's going to be the case where, like, the opposition's going to be able to credibly argue, you know, uh, what's needed isn't a whole bunch of new programs. It's just to do a good job at, like, the basics that the government isn't doing a good job of, you know. What was that Pierre Polyev line about? Something like, you don't need a government to run your life. You need one that you run a passport office. And, you know, passports are working better now, or at least the issuing of them is the new design's terrible. But um, it's, yeah, that sort of vibe that's going to hurt them and is going to hurt a any argument for a more expansive government. Like some of these are a little bit more manageable than others, like the inclusion in workplace for racialized employees. They just need better measurements to make sure the policies they're putting in place are actually having the outcomes they want. That's a very solvable issue. The antimicrobial resistance, they need some regulatory and economic incentives to help bringing those new uh, drugs to our market, as well as putting in place some um, outcome tracking. The IT system stuff is so like deeply broken. And the fact like these were flagged in 2010. We've had the Harper, you know, 2010, we have the whole Harper majority government. We have Trudeau's eras. Some of these reports go back even further. So like it's a well-known issue that spans multiple governments. And that doesn't mean like anyone is off the hook for it. It's definitely on Trudeau's shoulders for it. But it's also like such a deep systemic issue that you can't just turn off EI for a few months and fix everything and launch a new one. It's this very difficult 
transition where you need to build a new system, have it working while you're still running the old one and somehow shift everything over. So like I don't you know, I don't underestimate the scope and challenge of this and I you know, worry about the political rhetoric exceeding the actual ability of a different party being able to come in and just magically fix everything cuz most of this doesn't have magical fixes, but there does need to be a deep attention to it and a level of competency that we're not seeing right now. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.